cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Dave Welling, and he is the CEO of Mercer Advisors. Dave is a fascinating guy who has really a very interesting career path through everything from consulting to private equity to technology, all the way uh, into the financial services business. He brings a very different perspective to that industry. He never was an advisor, but he has worked in and around financial services his whole career, and and that really gives him a unique perspective. He has done quite an amazing job uh, building Mercer from a seven or nine billion dollar shop to a twenty-one plus billion dollar shop, one of the fastest growing firms in the industry. Um, I forgot to mention during our conversation that he was named uh, CEO of the year uh, by one of the financial magazines. He comes to us with just a, a very straightforward, honest perspective about what the financial services should be doing to both take care of its clients and employees, but as well as being a force for good in the world. I found this to be a fascinating conversation, and I expect you will also. With no further ado, my conversation with Mercer Advisors, Dave Welling. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Dave Welling. He is the CEO of Mercer Advisors, a Denver-based RIA with 400 employees and over $21 billion dollars in assets under management. Dave Welling, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, it's great to be here. Looking forward to it. So you have a really interesting job history that I want to discuss before we start getting into the details of Welling. You were at Advent, you were at Black Diamond, Charles Schwab, Bain & Company. Tell us a little bit about your career path. Sure. So, yeah, I think as you're getting it, Barry, um, I'm maybe not the traditional head of an advisory firm because I, I didn't start as an advisor, but I spent close to the last 30 years of my life supporting, enabling, and as I call it, clearing the path for advisors. So I was very, very fortunate back in the mid-90s to join Charles Schwab uh, in a really unique role and opportunity. I joined as a chief of staff, which was a completely made-up job for one of the vice chairmen running the advisor business and the 401k business. I had a chance to review with Chuck as part of the job. So 
boy, you know, talk about lucky is uh, a way to enter this industry and do it the right way and learn the right principles. You know, had a had a chance to work down the hall from Chuck and learn from him. But that was uh, that was 1997. And prior to that, uh, I had some experiences, but they were in management consulting. And like a lot of management consultants, I, I dabbled in a lot of industries. I worked in telco. I worked in consumer products. I worked in technology. I worked in uh, across the board. I actually worked in the private equity consulting practice of, of Bain & Company. And you know, while that was an awesome experience and a great foundation for learning business and role, I, I found myself really longing to find an industry that had a real purpose and to find a company and a place in that industry where you could really innovate. And Schwab became that place for me at the beginning of my career. Obviously, I've, I've had some other stops along the way, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about those. But really lucky to have spent 12 years at Schwab through the growth and evolution of that business and to find the independent advisor industry. Uh, and I just fell in love with it. You know, there's there's challenges, there's market turbulences, but we, we all have this compass uh, which is the client and doing the right thing for them. So uh, it's been been very, very, very good to me over the years. So you you had gone from Bain to Schwab, and after 12 years at Schwab, you left to go to Black Diamond, which seems to be like a much more technologically focused, less straight up uh, wealth management uh, company than Schwab. What was that transition like? And did I misstate that? It, it sounds like they're two very different companies in a similar field. Well, yeah, the Black Diamond, for those that don't know, uh, is a technology provider, most notably in uh, web-based, cloud-based development, providing reporting to advisors, uh, help them tell their stories, whether they were managing portfolios or providing a broader wealth management offering like Mercer Advisors does. Uh, And I guess similar to the story about uh, financial services, I I wasn't an engineer either, right? I didn't grow up as a developer. I just really understood the space and understood what advisors did. And that was 2009. So heels of the financial crisis, I decide it was the right time to to leave Schwab, pick my family up from the San Francisco Bay Area and join a technology company in northeastern Florida. All of my friends uh, in the Bay Area thought I was completely nuts for leaving the the safety and security of a big company, even despite the difficulties we were having. I I was doing very well there. I was continuing to grow and get, be given more responsibilities. Uh, but I had this idea that I wanted to get involved in technology. I really felt like uh, today, but especially at that time in 2009, that technology was going to be part of solving the challenges that our industry faced and the consumers were, were clamoring for. So I had this, this meta investment thesis, if you will, that technology was going to move from the back office to the front office, as we talk about in advisory firms. And help advisors run their businesses more efficiently with more scale and more consistency, but also give the consumer what they were demanding, which was more transparency. Uh, at that time, uh, I think, as you know, and might, might even remember, it was a very dynamic time. Consumers wanted to know how they were doing, where they were, and what Black Diamond did was on a daily basis, T plus one or next day, was able to tell clients at a very granular level how they were doing. Uh, not just pulling up the last quarterly performance report, which could have been two and a half or three months old, uh, given timing of how those those uh, report out and be able to tell folks very dynamically. So uh, it was a, a great opportunity and a, a risk, if you will, on, on one level, but probably the best career decision I ever made. You know, we all face these opportunities and these 
these roads uh, that we that we meet in in our careers and uh, that was an opportunity for me to try my hand at something that was much much more entrepreneurial it was very small when i joined there's 20 employees less than 2 million in annual revenues a wow. good product but certainly not a big business uh, so pretty big difference very from from a big company with a lot of resources to drop into an environment that was still trying to break through, uh, still try to to get known and develop its footing. And yeah, well, I've left that part of my career behind. That was over, you know, three years ago when I left that team. There's now more than 500 people in Northeastern Florida. It's one of the best companies to work for in Northeastern Florida. So, you know, very proud of that part of my career heritage. It, It didn't start that way. Um, but nothing like being thrown into an entrepreneurial situation to figure out whether you've, you've got the goods uh, to be able to to bootstrap and do things yourself rather than rely on big, big teams to do things for you. So let's talk about the next entrepreneurial opportunity. Not too long ago, you end up at Mercer Advisors. What was the transition like becoming a CEO of a wealth management firm when you were previously working in what really is a, a technology company? The transition was was quick, and it was a change. I, I finished work uh, at Black Diamond. Uh, Black Diamond had, over the years, had been acquired by Advent Software, which then in turn had been acquired by SS&C Technologies. So I'd gone from this small entrepreneurial company who actually was running Advent, which is a international company with offices all over the world as a division of SS&C, um, you know, over 400 million annual revenues, you know, thousands of employees. Uh, was was co-leader of that business, but I was longing again to get back to something that was a little bit more entrepreneurial and a little bit closer to home in terms of focusing on the advisor business. But I finished work at 6 p.m. on a Friday, uh, 6 a.m. the next morning, I was on a plane. And then Sunday night, I had dinner with uh, Dave Barton, who was the CEO of Mercer for eight years prior to me joining. And the juncture where Mercer was at the time was growing very quickly organically, but also had a had an opportunity and interest to to go through some acquisitions and acquire smaller practices of financial planners all over the country who were looking for that solution. Dave went left, uh, meaning Dave jumped into a vice chairman role and started focusing on mergers and acquisitions, and that created an opportunity for me to join the organization and help uh, lead the next chapter. So, uh, very different, very different business. Uh, probably the biggest difference structurally uh, isn't what you'd think. Um, it's not technology versus wealth management. It's people largely all in one place with a sales team spread around the country, which is technology to Mercer. You know, we're about 450 employees today spread across 45 offices, or so I like to say 45 leases wow. that we're paying for in different parts of the country. So it's very different to lead a culture that's spread as thin as we are and lead it as one team. So uh, different different transition in that respect to figure out how to land and earn the trust of the team and uh, to lead the organization when we're we're so dispersed, at least at least physically dispersed. So I want to get to the issue of growing through mergers and acquisitions, but before we go there, I have to stick with two questions about your transition to being CEO. The first one is, how does an outsider come into a relatively small privately held company as a CEO? That sounds like it's a big challenge. Tell us a little bit about that transition. Uh, so the history of Mercer is actually pretty unique. And you know, my position as CEO comes in after a long history of ownership transition, leadership transition. So Kendrick Mercer 
the founder of the business, founded Mercer in 1985. Uh, we were one of the first fee-only financial planning firms in the country. Kendrick, a uh, very unique guy, passionate about financial planning, but had a lot of other life interests, made the decision to bring in a partner group in uh, early early 90s, 1991, brought on five partners. Uh, Dave Barton, who I mentioned earlier, was one of those partners. Uh, in 2003, we brought on our first CEO. So uh, I'm not the first CEO of the business, the first, uh, kind of a transition of CEOs, if you will. And the, the interesting thing about Mercer, when you look at what's happening in our industry, is we made this transition from a single founder to a partnership, a partnership to a CEO mandate, to outside capital investments and private private equity. So when we talk about mergers and acquisitions, Mercer's been down a lot of these paths. Um, We've evaluated the options and decisions at different junctures of our history. Um, Because we've been around for so long, we've made those decisions over the years. So my entry as CEO came into a business that was used to having a CEO, uh, also had a lot of outside capital. And as I'm sure you know, a really important part of the CEO is not just leading the business, but managing the investor base as well and keeping them confident and comfortable and to be able to pass pass the business forward. What was tricky for me at the time of entering the the business in 2017 was to get the team to know me. Uh, So the very first thing that I did uh, was certainly not sit in headquarters and try and uh, do planning. I I got on a plane at that time. We we certainly could do that. Uh, It's much unfortunate that we can't do it now. And I went to visit every single office, um, sat with the teams, talked to them about what was working, what was not working, what they thought we should do to move forward. Uh, best thing I ever did because it both connected me to the culture and team and inversely helped the team understand who I was and where I was coming from. Huh. Very interesting. So in 2017, the firm was under $10 billion. Today, you're over $20 billion. That's not that long a time to more than double in size. Was that your vision from day one to begin uh, acquiring other advisory shops? How did this approach come about? Yeah, I guess it was certainly part of our most recent history, but the the vision and purpose of the organization is to help clients and help them on their path to economic freedom. So as we talked about a little earlier, the firm's been around 35 years and we've only been doing acquisitions over the last four. What, What had happened over the first 30 plus years is the business had grown uh, to be a national firm. We had 18 offices all around the country. We were about $6 billion at that time prior to doing our first acquisition. And we had gone through the work and figured out that working as 18 different teams wasn't going to work. Uh, we had a centralized investment team, a common client experience. We had built our estate planning team and tax team. We had built the the set of services that we provide our clients and, and had built a culture of working together despite being physically separated across those 18 offices. And what we found uh, was there was both interest and an opportunity for other firms who were like-minded to join us uh, to get access to that set of services and capabilities. And, you know, in this, this industry, there's a lot of great professionals out there, a lot of great independent investment advisors out there who work as true fiduciaries that they have small practices. It's a very fragmented interest industry. And some of those principles that were at one time entrepreneurs had evolved from entrepreneurs to starting to think about their retirement. And they were looking for a place to put their practice, put their business, put their clients uh, in, a, in the hands of a firm that 
had shared interests, shared beliefs, and a shared value system. So it was this coming together of Mercer having an appetite to grow and a ability to grow, uh, a desire to grow, but also huge, huge demand from firms that were just like Mercer. Um, we've acquired businesses that, while they're a lot smaller, have also been around for 30 years and some of the first fee-only financial planning firms in the country. And what's different about acquisitions in, in our industry and in our space and in this context is those sellers are looking for much more than a transaction and evaluation of their business. Um, that's what I saw in technology. You, you see it all the time when Amazon buys companies or Google buys companies. You know, they're buying the technology. They, they want the engineers, but it's very different than this industry. Uh, these are for people who set out on their own, have been running their own business for 20 years. It's, it's their life's work. And they're not going to put their clients uh, into a bad investment. And they're not going to put their clients into a situation where uh, the firm that's, that's taking over the business and becoming their succession plan for them uh, doesn't share the same values and beliefs and systems. So I think what has really propelled our, our acquisition strategy is a combination of two things. One, We've done quite a few of them. Uh, by the time we finish this year, we will have done over 40 acquisitions in four years, so over 10 a year on, on average. And the second is all those firms believing their clients are going to be better served after. Um, easy example, and I think we might talk about this later, we have a dedicated estate planning team and a dedicated tax team, not just CPAs and lawyers who are practicing advisors. We have dedicated teams that all they do is put together estate plans for clients, and those are often huge uptick services for for clients in this context. So the sellers see, hey, this is not just good for me. This is going to be a good solution for my client. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So I want to discuss the various wealth management services Mercer offers in a few minutes. Let's focus now on the merger and acquisition process. You guys have completed 40 in four years. That That's quite a robust number. Tell us a little bit about your process. How do you find companies to acquire? Are you looking for them? Do they come to you? Give us a little uh, behind-the-scenes explanation as to what this process is like. Yeah, there's a there's a obviously a courtship process, right? There's there's a do we like them and do they like us process, which you know picks up on the comment I made before, and and maybe we can come back and what happens after, right? It's the 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 consummation, the the acquisition itself, the closing date. That's just a milepost on the building of a broader relationship. But focusing on on before that milepost, uh, the, the more acquisitions we've done, the the more people find their way to us because we have now 
become a known option that has a certain value proposition, right? So we, we are, as I call it, an integrator, not an aggregator. Uh, we are going to become one business, one integrated client experience. Uh, and that's very appealing, uh, not just to our shareholders and from a business perspective, it's, it's very relevant to the context of some of the situations where we find sellers that are looking for a succession plan or a place to transition their practice or their business. Uh, we're very active in the industry. Uh, my involvement in the industry for 30 plus years, I've, I've probably been in a thousand different advisor offices around the country over the years, just physical offices. So those relationships are really helpful because we're not starting from scratch. There's some prior intersection. It may have been several years where firms that I've known, principals that I've known over the years that I've had the fortune to build a relationship with and helping them build that business or just be on the be on the sidelines cheering for them um, is very relevant to the meeting and greeting part of it. But once we kind of get the conversation going, um, we believe in a really rich interface of dialogue between our firm and their firm. The the best the best context is there's several people deep in our our firm and several people deep in theirs who are talking to each other, not about the valuation of the transaction. That's probably less than 5% of, of the content. It's important, but it's relatively straightforward uh, and a place to land on whether you're going to have a, a similar sense of what the value of the business is. The most important part is how are we going to be better together than we were apart? What is this going to be like for clients? Um, how, what tools are in the tool chest, both at Mercer or in the business that we're acquiring? Um, we've acquired several practices that have not just been wealth management firms that had dedicated accounting teams themselves, right? So that's been really appealing for us to build our tax business, build our expertise in our tax business, and for them to know the acquirer really believed in having that part of the business because not everybody in our industry really wants that um, to be part of their core service offering. So uh, that that's, you know, the, the, the rich interface. So by the time we get to, okay, the we're going to do this acquisition and the close date, we have mutual clarity on what we're trying to create together. Uh, we have a vision of how things are to come together at a pretty granular level. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we didn't touch on earlier in my experience when I was at Black Diamond, Black Diamond was bought by, by Advent. Advent was a public company. It was bought by SSC. And given the scale of those transactions, but most of the employees found out about it on a random Tuesday. And then we were scrambling to figure out what the strategy was and how the pieces were going to fit together. We, we have an opportunity in the context of these acquisitions to do a lot of work up front to make sure that the uncertainty that that can be there in these transitions is really limited. Uh, the uncertainty for clients, the uncertainty for employees, because we say, well, this is going to look like and this is how it's going to work. Um, huge opportunity. And that that helps people feel really confident when when they make these decisions. So under normal circumstances, there's a lot of meet and greet. There's a lot of back and forth. But obviously, these are not normal circumstances. How do you do these sorts of deals that require a little bit of staring each other in the eye and making sure everybody's comfortable with each other during a pandemic where we're kind of limited to Zoom and not person-to-person meetings? What, what's it been like this year? Yeah, it, there's no question it's a lot harder, right? Um, I, I think, you know, the, the uptick, people look at the disadvantages, right? This is a at its core, this is a kneecap to kneecap business. That's how advisors build their relationships with clients, particularly at the beginning. 
and this bond of trust that needs to form over an extended period of time of delivering value is just as true in this context of acquisitions as it is in the context of an advisor working with their clients. And I'm sure many of your listeners, that will resonate with them. But what's been really interesting about using Zoom and the technology, it's actually enabled us to have a much quicker cadence and to have more people from the firms we're acquiring be engaged in the process and more people engaged on the Mercer team. Uh, we just did a call yesterday morning that went three hours um, with with the firm that's going to be joining us at the end of the year. And we had eight people from the Mercer team coming in in different time segments talking about how their be- the employee benefits are going to work, how the investment mapping is going to work, how our estate planning team is going to work. Uh, that would have been hard for us to do in a different context to fly eight people from Mercer across the country, get all their employees under one room and do that, um, do that together. We, we have a team and have always done that, but it, it's interesting where we've been engaged, able to engage multiple people. And then there's some follow-up questions. So we, we get back on the phone, right. And get the zoom back fired back up. So I, I think our industry is wrestling with what does life look like after with all this technology. I think we've found that, that it actually can be really enriching and help pick up the cadence and avoid the scheduling of, well, where are we going to fly across country to meet each other? Um, I think we, we'd love to add that back in, but there's there's a real learning here for us as an industry about how how the technology can help support these relationships and conversations on a much quicker cadence um, and involve more people where it's, it's only an hour investment of their time. You go right at the questions they have um, and address it. And if you're you need somebody to come in because something comes up. Somebody can ju- join join the session live rather than have to jump on a plane and fly across country. So, so uh, I think all of us have been surprised about how well it's gone. A little bit of lemonade out of the uh, pandemic, to, sure. to say to say the least. So, in a previous conversation, I discussed the sort of multiples that that we've seen in the industry with Peter Maluk of Creative Planning, and and he pointed out that things started out fairly inexpensively, but there's just such a wash of private equity money. And with yields as low as they are, well-run advisory firms are very similar to a bond in that they throw off a pretty decent yield with a very modest amount of risk. What are you seeing in terms of, of multiples? Have prices for advisory firms gotten out of hand or, or are things a little more reasonable this year, given all the experience we've had with remote work and the pandemic? This is one of the things where it has it pays to have been around this industry for quite a while, right? So having seen acquisitions, having seen how outside capital thinks about our industry, I think there's some things happening that are actually quite fundamental. You know, I think I think Peter's right. You know, valuations are going up. To go right at your your, your question, but I think what's happening is people are starting to realize the value. Right. So, who an independent RAA is and why that's different than a wirehouse broker. What does it really mean to be a fiduciary? There's obviously been a huge narrative in our industry about the fiduciary standards and the importance of that. Still shocking to me that not every advisor working with clients isn't required to be a fiduciary. We, of course, are. I know your firm and 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 are, but that's not the way the rest of our industry is. So people are learning that from a business perspective. I think the outside capital is really starting to learn that these are quality businesses, very high retention, very high recurring cash flow. Why? 
because the advisors do good work and the clients like it and they tell more people about it, right? So in a, in a cash flow business or in a service business for an outside investor, that's a little hard sometimes to wrap your head around until you see the patterns of success over a sustained period of time. So what's happening in our industry, I think, is is the outside capital in particular finally starting to recognize the, the value of this industry most fundamentally in terms of the value it provides the consumer and how this industry continues to grow and how these businesses continue to grow. So that's a, that's a big why, right? When you look at macro versus micro trends, now you come into micro trends, you're, you get to a little bit more about what Peter may have been talking about, which is there's a lot of well-financed purposeful buyers like Mercer and others that are interested in investing in the space. You have sellers um, who are interested in a transition for their clients. As I said earlier, a transition that feels like they're putting them in a home that's similar um, or the same in terms of values and offering that they've built up over the years. Uh, and you get a lot more interest um, in the space. But fundamentally, um, you know, it's a good investment for us. You know, acquisitions we do, uh, we average 98, 99% retention for years after the fact, even in wow. years after a principal maybe retired. And I, I was on the phone and I mentioned that stat to, you know, one of the firms who recently sold the business. And I, I basically, Mercer didn't screw things up, right? And we added some value, but fundamentally that's what the business was before we bought it, right? So that, that's why these things are interesting. We're, Mercer really can add value is in expanding the services for those clients so the clients are experiencing more value. And we're often able to get growth turned back on in a business that maybe grew at one time, but over the last few years, maybe had slowed significantly on growth um, you know, from a market perspective. But I think, yes, yes, valuations are going up, but that's because there's value and people are starting to recognize it. So I have a bunch of more questions about this space on culture and lessons and, and the role of Barton as former CEO and now your head of M&A. But before I go there, I have to ask, how important is private equity to these deals? How are they usually structured? Is it part cash, part earn out over time? What do these look like? Sure. So... Uh, you know, deal structures evolve in the industry and, you know, people like to say the market sets prices and the market sets a deal structure too. We talked about valuation, but, but, you know, structure is just as important, um, I would say as the actual valuation. So, you know, I think that the structures vary, but usually there's a significant amount of cash or capital up front. Uh, there's, there's some in and earn out to make sure the business transitions well and retention stays in place. So that oscillates over time from maybe 60% up front and 40% in, in an earnout focused around focused around retention and tr- an effective transition of the business. So yeah, that, that's from a, a structural standpoint. Uh, we, we provide opportunity for people to, to have equity uh, in Mercer. Uh, we have the opportunity actually for every employee of the company to buy into the company. So that's may sound strange given the fact that we have private equity investors, but um, really important, you know, and I think, you know, we can maybe unpack the private equity piece a little bit. Fundamentally, what what private equity ownership does for us and being a person that that is leading a business that's had private equity involvement since, since you know, the 2008, right, was, was our, our first private equity investment, it, it is 
made the CEO seat and the business accountable to become what we're capable of becoming, right? So I am accountable to the board. If I don't do my job well, um, I can be fired or let go. And, and fundamentally, I think that's good for employees and good for the clients, right? Which is, you know, is this, is this sure. business delivering on its promise to, to its clients? And if it's not, you know, what responsibility does the CEO hold for that? So I think, I think people miss that. They just talk about it as, as capital. And I actually think about it more as accountability and, and responsibility and something for the business to, to become what it's capable of coming. Quite, quite interesting. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Let's stick with this space and discuss the corporate culture. How do you as CEO maintain a corporate culture when first everybody is in far-flung locations in 45 separate offices we we do something similar on a smaller scale and second you're adding new bodies new organizations and new people to a company that might have had a somewhat different prior culture how do you integrate all of that yeah i think when we're we just talk about acquisitions uh, the first test is really culture right so there's culture there's strategy and then there's financial. So it, it needs to make cultural sense and strategic sense before you even bother talking about valuation of the business. So fortunately, you know, we focused on buying financial planning firms. We focused on buying firms who believe and operate under the fiduciary standards. Um, and we focused on firms who have a, a similar, but not maybe always identical investment philosophy, but, but investment philosophy that's rooted as an outcome of the financial plan rather than in alpha shop focusing on a particular sleeve or sector or, or investment type. So, um, that's really important, right? Cause you're starting from a place where there's, there's good cultural alignment in terms of values, principles, and, and, and a belief in how the client could be served. So when we're spread all across the country, you know, Mercer for years did a big annual event. And, you know, as we got bigger, the event got bigger. Um, we broke from that over I mean, two years ago and started doing a lot of smaller events. We, we were just growing so quickly that you know, we could add you know, 50, 60 employees in three months after the event happened, right? the big annual event happened. So uh, we moved the corporate headquarters uh, back in the beginning of 2018 out of California to Denver, Colorado. Part of the purpose of that was to be central. Um, we called it not headquarters. We call it central hub. And in non-COVID pandemic years, we would hold close to 30 different peer sessions in the hub where people would come in, 
meet their peers from other offices around the country. So we wouldn't take the Santa Barbara team and bring the Santa Barbara team in. We'd take all the financial planners and get them talking to their peers. And that, that helped foster the cultural, uh, cultural connection. Uh, coincidentally, this is a, a play from the Bain playbook, you know, Bain and a company where I work had offices all over the world. They take consultants they, at each rank. They take new managers from all over the world and you'd build relationships with people working in other parts of the world um, who maybe could be helpful for you as you got to a project later. So that was really helpful in helping build a culture. We also have a number of programs and initiatives, including our investors program, uh, employee resource groups, a variety of different kinds that allow employees an opportunity to engage with peers and individuals who who maybe not only are in the same position, but care about the same things that they care about. Um, that's been, that's been really productive and important in, in the pandemic. Uh, we've had to work a lot harder. Um, all of us are trying to figure out how to do those things virtually. Um, it has to be much more purposeful. I think there were things that in non-pandemic time that could be organic and a little bit freeform, but we've, we've evolved to a state where we're, we're doing virtual happy hours. We're uh, doing you know sessions where people are baking Christmas cookies together or holiday celebrations together, depending on their faith. So it's it's been it's been purposeful and a little bit more centrally coordinated to remind people that this is an important part of building our culture. Um, so you know, as you talk about acquisitions, you know, I can touch on that briefly. You know, I think we sure. have similar origin stories and beliefs, but. You know, we, it's important for us to recognize that we are this tapestry of, of different businesses that have different origin stories. So people sometimes confuse culture with norms and habits and traditions, right? So traditions are, are important parts of a culture, sure, but fundamentally we think about it as principles and have people be willing to adapt and not just adapt to the Mercer way. We, we adopt practices at firms that we acquire. So you, know, you, you, in some ways, preserve, recognize, and celebrate the heritage that was there of some of the businesses that, that have joined us as well. Huh. Very interesting. And, and my final question on the M&A practice, there had to be some interesting lessons you've picked up along the way doing 40 acquisitions in, in just a few short years. What did you learn? What are some of the pitfalls to be avoided? Yeah. So I'm an analogy guy, and the, the one that I'll use here and like to use is paddleboarding, right? So I, I used to live in Florida when I was working at Black Diamond, and we lived on the ocean, and I had a paddleboard, right? So if you've, if, even if you've done it on vacation, you know, you get out on a paddleboard, you get in the chop, and you get in the waves, and you see people kind of stand still and try and get their balance, um, and anybody who's been on a paddleboard, whether it's just, you know, on a vacation or has actually owned one like I did, know the best way to keep your balance at a paddleboard is to get it moving, right? So momentum plus having the paddle in the water are critical to keeping stability. So I think, you know, early on, we tried to go very slow. We had this phrase of, quote, do no harm. And unfortunately, do no harm maybe started to turn into doing no good, right? We weren't on the same systems together. We hadn't set up the umbilical cord to connect people with our estate planning team and tax team, which were often services they haven't had. And while the, the pace is, is measured and cautious for all a whole bunch of good reasons, I think the biggest lesson is you have to have momentum. And that momentum needs to start from the very beginning. Um, and 
that's that's been really critical to to get a clear plan in place, a clear destination. Um, I think the other key learning we have, and this comes from me being a guy who is part of a business that was acquired twice and and wishing you know a couple times I had a do over, is one of the things that we do just before a firm joins us. So we're going to have a couple firms join us here at the end of the year. We do an internal call at Mercer with all the heads of the departments, not just the executive team, but there's maybe 20 people on this call. And we walk through who is this firm? Who are the people? What are their hopes, dreams, fears, and aspirations? What's the vision of what we're trying to create together? Uh, because this relationship that was formed in the courtship process maybe didn't involve all those people. And it's important for them to understand all that and to be walked through that. So, it, it gives the selling entity a running start, if you will, that the entire Mercer team understands what we're trying to create and understands what the discussions were and understands what their concerns were right? um, of, of how things are going to go or a certain piece of their client experience that needed to stay in place, whatever the discussion was. So those two things have been really important. What's interesting is they're kind of more vision-oriented versus tactical planning, right? So it's sort of a in understanding in terms of how are we going to come together and where are we going and we're going to move together, right? And having the teams understand that. Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the lack of diversity in the financial services industry. Your firm puts on something called Investors, which is a woman's initiative designed to promote diversity in the advisor space. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Invest Hers, uh, ATRS, uh, capitalized, is a program that we put in place uh, a little over three years ago. And I think you know, and our entire industry knows, we, we really struggle with diversity. Right? A lot of the industry is, is still male, stale, and pale, right? as, as folks like to say. <laughs> and That's and the, the question is, how do you affect change in something that feels at the outset, very difficult to change. So, yeah, I'd like to go back and talk about like where where that idea came from. And uh, when I joined the business as CEO in 2017, I mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast that the first thing I did was travel the country and visit our then 30 offices. We're now close to 50 offices, but the the 30 offices. And the first thing that I saw was we had, and we're very fortunate to have a number of incredibly talented women um, who are already part of our organization um, as advisors, uh, financial planners, estate planning team, um, on and on and on. And and then about 40% of our client advisory staff were women. Today, we're, we're a little over 45%, closer to 50%. Um, so we had, a, we had a good starting point. Uh, those folks didn't happen to be in leadership positions at the time, and we've also changed that both through this program and through merit. These are talented people. We weren't doing it as any sort of just like, hey, let's become more diverse. These are talented people that we asked to step into leadership roles all, all around the country. Uh, the, the second thing was I, I attended an event, uh, and there was a, a panel of, of women leaders in our industry who were talking about all the trends around women and wealth and how women are going to live longer and how many women are head of household, a bunch of things that you know, being a being a guy who loves data were, were all kind of clear to me and intuitive to me. Um, what I was stuck on was exactly what we should do next, right? So I understood the problem. I understood the metrics and why it was important. 
but trying to figure out what to do next was a real challenge. And uh, fortunately, go back to this, we had these talented people in the organization. I, I tapped a couple of them on the shoulder and I said, look, we, we I really want to launch this thing. Um, I don't know what to call it. You're going to have to figure out what to call it because we don't need a male, stale, and pale, middle-aged white dude deciding what what we should call a program like this. But I, I need your leadership, and I will give you unconditional support, but you need to tell me what you're going to do. And and what they landed on was a charter that had both a, both a leg of our strategy and purpose and charter that program to drive more diversity in our business and in the industry. The second was to make sure we were really relevant and in tune with the needs of our female clients. So it has an internal purpose and an external purpose. And at least for us, that's that's kind of the biggest learning is having both um, has been really important to get the flywheel on this turning and start to start to help us make progress. The the elevation and empowerment of the talented women in our organization has helped us from recruiting, right? has helped us bring more talent into the organization. We do scholarships. We have relationships with the universities um, that, that go towards this cause. But it's it's really the engagement of the women professionals in our organization that has been a draw for talent. And then our clients see that, right? Our clients see a firm that reflects them, reflects their values, and it's helped us externally. Um, all those things work together to help propel it. It was, it was hard to get started and hard to know what exactly to do first, uh, but you know we had we had this great starting point of having talented women already in our organization who were passionate about this and and you know had the energy and had had my support um, whether it was funding or just verbal support to, to help get things going. So it's it's been a big success for us and the the steering committee and the that now hundreds of women that have been involved in that. We just did. Our, our virtual, we usually do an annual event around investors at a nice retreat for a couple of days. We did that virtually over a two-week period. We just wrapped that up and had more than half of our company uh, participate that, and including some men, right, who participated in that, who who want to be better advocates, want to be better allies, um, and and are just as committed to the cause as our women professionals are. You have a quote I really like. Tell us what we can do to, quote, stand together and do the next right thing, unquote. Yeah, so this came out of the very challenging times that we have had in 2020 around uh, more broadly diversity in our country and the systemic inequalities that exist. And yeah, I think like a lot of leaders, I, I tend to note uh, to the team talking about what we stood for and reminding them that um, in the era of diversity, there was there was, you know, we really needed to do the right thing. And then it became with some encouragement from some folks on my team, I posted it to, to social media together. And it was talking you know, right on the heels of the, the death of George Floyd and, 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 and others just, just tragic. And it, the team was just, you know, you know, gut wrenched. Right. And, and I think stuck in this place of, we know this is wrong, but we're not quite sure what to do next. And I think, you know, as we have embarked on this and I, you know, far less progress to, to be able to relay at this stage than we've made in our women's program and women's initiative. You know, I got to this point where it's, we, we, A, needed to say something, B, more importantly, needed to listen. Um, so the, the, there was a huge desire and it remains a huge desire to quote, do something. The first thing that I felt like was important was to listen. So we held 
probably a dozen, maybe as many as 20 internal forums for our employees to talk about um, the issues around diversity and inequalities in our country. And that was really powerful. There was this desire to do something, but um, I think all of us are recognizing that we need to just ground ourselves in, in understanding and listening first. So I think where we are today, uh, we've, we've taken a number of actions. We've, we've, um, I've joined a group here in Colorado called Inclusive Economy. It's a group of about 25 CEOs with some not-profit, um, not-profit involvement as well around helping Colorado become a more diverse economy. And I think what I've landed on, I'm a liberal arts undergrad guy, so this has got an alliteration coming here, but it's about actions, you taking actions. It's also about creating allies. Uh, I've connected with a number of advisors in our per- profession who care about the same things, and we're, we're trying to work together on these issues. And the Inclusive Economy Program in Colorado is, is about allies, about 25 CEOs of companies in Colorado working together to try and drive effective change. And it's, it's also about accountability, right? Being, being part of that male, pale, and stale crowd. I think part of, part of my job, you know, part of our job is to hold my peers accountable, right? And I think that's something that I've, I really learned, uh, this year is, is you need to do more than just do, do the right thing yourself. You need to, step up, particularly those of us that are, are fortunate enough to be in leadership roles and, and hold others accountable. Um, and we need to be emboldened that we need to make progress, but not be discouraged that our starting point sucks, right? We, we don't like where we are. We don't like what we can, but there's, there's no option in my mind. The other phrase that's in that, that um, article that I put together is about you know, relentless forward progress. Um, I have got some good friends who are, who are ultra marathoners and when I have the time, one of the things I do is go and I, I support them on these 200-mile runs in crazy parts of the world. And, you know, their mantra is relentless forward progress. doesn't matter if you're tired, right? And doesn't matter if you, you think you want to stop, right? You, you have to make progress, right? And I think that's, you know, what we're trying to do. Quite, quite interesting. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You signed the UN Principles for Responsible Investing some years ago. How has that affected the way Mercer is a steward of capital? Yeah. So our our chief investment officer, Don Calcagni, brought that to me and was a real advocate advocate for it. Um, And it was one of those moments where, you know, you had me at hello, which was we, we wanted to be part of change and um, we felt like it was an important change. And, and a number of our, uh, we work with a, a number of separate account managers um, who also have been 
co-signatories to to the UN principles for responsible investing as well. Uh, wh- what's interesting is in, not only are we signatories, we we actually have some pretty unique capabilities under the hood in Mercer's investment offering to provide SRI or ESG investing capabilities that are very customized and come at no additional expense uh, to the investor. So very, very cost advantaged and even even more cost advantaged than some of the funds and resources that are available through Vanguard and other places that are known for being low expense. And I think a lot of the industry, the internal narrative right, has been, well, this is something important, but it, it feels very small and it's certainly not as, as big as it has been in Europe. Um, and But I think you're starting to see uh, interest uh, from investors and that interest turn into uh, capital investments in 2020. So, um, uh, pocketed now regionally in different parts of the country, uh, where investors really are interested in seeing their advisor have these capabilities, um, so that they can tailor or tailor investment portfolios to things that they care about, right? So, um, you know, this, this extension of we need to act a certain way in the world, but we, we want our money to act in the same way, right? So, um, it's just been hard. It's been hard to access for, for the regular consumer and, you know, we're happy to be playing a, a small part in helping democratize that access and have people be able to do the right thing with their money, but not have it have to cost them more money or or come with inefficient portfolios. So, um, so it's been a it's huh. been a good success for us. Very interesting. So let's discuss the future of financial advice. You're the perfect person to ask this question. How have client expectations? evolved over the past few years? Well, I think investors now expect a lot more than an asset allocation strategy and investment portfolio, right? That is important. Uh, It's an important part of somebody's financial plan. And obviously, consumers remain very interested in in investments. It's just those, those options and the role of an advisor helping put things together for an investor. There's a lot of places they can get that now from you know, what, what the industry might call robo-advisors to large retail shops uh, that used to be known as discount brokerage shops, but now are, are making those things available. And that, that's good for the consumer. Um, for, for us, um, we've been following the path of the consumer uh, to provide more services, right, beyond, beyond asset allocation and investment. So that has manifested itself in a business that offers comprehensive financial planning, which has always been part of our core offering, has manifested itself in us having a dedicated estate planning team. We will draft documents um, for the clients and in not cookie cutter plans, customized plans. We have a tax team that does individual and business work together. But I think one of the other ingredients that's really important about Mercer is the way that the team is aligned is to work all as one team together and not multiple different departments, right? So, um, you know, having been a guy who had the fortune to live near one of the Mayo Clinics um, when I was living in Jacksonville, Florida, you know, Mayo Clinic does a very nice job of, of this in, in medicine, where it, it's not just you're going in for heart surgery or cancer. It's, it's a place you want to go if, if you think something's wrong with you, but you're not sure, <laughs> because all those professionals across those different disciplines are there to help diagnose and figure out what's going on. So fortunately, when we meet consumers, there's not a health crisis, but there is a lot of uncertainty about their financial affairs. And they're 
they're looking for somebody to help solve a problem that maybe is becoming more complex, right? They have an investment problem. They have some tax questions. They have some issues around their estate, or there's a recommendation that may need to involve all of those parties, right? If you want to set up a asset protection trust, right? They they simply don't want to have to go talk to three different professionals to to get that put together and have the meter running at at least two of those three places to be able to put together that strategy. So I think as investors and the consumers have both aged and matured, there's an expectation for for those of us that are in the seat of the professional advisor to, to help them ease that complexity. And, and part of the complexity that exists in our industry is that it's still it's still split up in a lot of places. So, you know, Mercer's vision and ideas to bring those expertise all under one roof um, and then to align those professionals around one standard, which is let, let's work together to provide the best set of recommendations and the best execution of those recommendations to get the plan in place and to get it finished. Um, so that's certainly where we're going. Um, but I think there's part of a broader secular shift of, of the sophistication and evolution of our entire industry. So let's stay with the concept of that evolution. I, I'm intrigued by the idea of uh, estate planning as well as tax planning not as discrete departments within a big company, but as something that is integral to the entire financial planning process. How do you manage to keep this part of the regular process and, and not have these become their own little neighborhoods separate from the rest of the wealth planning process? Yeah, well, uh, that goes to culture, but it also goes to the mandate, right? Uh, it's gonna, so we... We don't charge for estate planning. It's included as part of our advisory fee for clients. Um, so it's complimentary, if you will. So, and we don't charge hourly rates in either our estate planning group or our tax group, right? So we do charge an annual fee for preparing the tax return or, you know, especially if there's a business return, there would be a, a fee for that as well to, to get us to prepare the returns that's commensurate with what folks would experience in the industry. But our lawyers and our accountants also thereby are not measured the way it happens in other parts of the industry around billable hours. Um, our principle is serve the client, right? follow through and deliver the estate plan that was part of the recommendation in the financial plan. And oh, by the way, if there's an outside estate planning attorney that the client knows that they've worked with in the past, maybe they have existing documents in place that need to be updated, our lawyers will get on the phone with their lawyers, right? So we're not trying to to earn a buck on, on fulfilling the estate planning. We're just trying to help the client finish the recommendations that are in the financial plan. So to, to pull this off, you need to have a little bit more scale, and there's where Still at still at twenty one billion dollars, we're we're small in the landscape of of other firms out there, but we're big enough to be able to have these dedicated departments with individuals. So we we also keep the every client is assigned a point advisor um, who manages the relationship. And you know, if you want to use the medical analogy, that's that's the general practitioner, right? But the specialists are deployed into that relationship based on either A, client request, or B, more more frequently, the point advisor's recommendation of let's get our estate planning team involved. And then the estate planning team is involved, right, um, being able to help take care of the client. So 
I think where this is broken down in other parts of our industry, um, there's some large tax firms that have wealth management practices, and and maybe that's something that you're referencing. They, they are different departments, and it feels like that to the consumer. You might as well be going to a separate accounting firm altogether because <laughs> you are jumping into a different silo. So you have to tear down the silos and not let them let them get built, I think, and and yeah. make sure that, that everybody understands the same principle is that there's one goal in mind, it's serving the client. That makes perfect sense to me. You mentioned that at $21 billion, you're relatively small. This is kind of the fascinating thing about the RIA industry. It's kind of weird in that nobody really has meaningful market share. So how do you think about the competition and, and do they even matter? Yeah, I think it, I think it depends on how you frame it, right? So I think, I think Fidelity is probably the largest financial services firm in our country, yet it still, depends how you measure it, maybe has mid single digit market share. So very, very fragmented industry. So at, at 21 billion, um, then from a financial advisory perspective, you have the wirehouses out there, you know, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch that are all trillions, right? So they're much, much larger than we are. To me, that's the, that's the competition or, or the exact opposite of what we are and what we want to become. We operate under a fiduciary standard. Uh, we serve our clients. We're purely an independent registered investment advisor. We don't have an investment banking division. We don't have other things that could introduce conflicts into the client relationship. So when you talk about fragmented, then you get in the segment of the industry that are um, registered investment advisors or fiduciaries. I think a lot of us leading these firms, you know, recognize that there's more to be gained from us working together um, than from us seeing or perceiving each other as competitors. So I'm part of a, an industry study group. Uh, I've been part of that group for over 15 years. I'm very active in events. We we share you know, information on around our initiatives with each other because we believe that helping the entire category grow, um, firms that are adhering to that fiduciary standard is in is in the best interest of the consumer and ultimately helps us, right? We can we can help each other um, punch above our weight class, if you will, from an industry perspective when we when we work together. So I think that's uh I think that's important. I think you you can look at you look at look, look at competition as well. They provide similar services to us at the margin. You know, I, I'm interested if the client doesn't choose us, that they find another good home that's going to serve them in the right way. Um, so I, I don't think of that as competition. I look at that as another consumer that was better served if they made the right choice. So um, I think it's interesting, and it, it is a little weird, right? It's very different than how it felt when I was in technology and there. In any category, there were two or three main players. That was that was competition. Right? Um, every everybody looking at buying your piece of technology was looking at the direct competitor and evaluating against each other. That's competition. This is this is not right. This is this is different. And I think has been one of the things that has really drawn and attracted me to this industry is this collegiality uh, that that you know Mercer doesn't have all the good ideas cornered and hasn't figured a lot of things out um, as an industry. You know, all of us are smarter than any any one of us. So it's it's great that we have that culture to be able to share best practices and share learnings and to help each other. So let's stick with the industry as a whole. We just had a giant merger announced earlier this year, uh, the Schwab TD merger. 
How do you think this is going to impact the industry at large? And is there going to be more consolidation in the custodial space? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, you know, short-term bearish, long-term bullish uh, on this one. And as we talked about earlier, I, I worked at Schwab for 12 years. So I've, I've got some insight, not just to Schwab, but from the other side of it. I, I think, you know, ultimately it's, it's good for our industry and, and, you know, frankly, the writing was on the wall when we go to $0 transaction fees, right? I can remember working at Schwab where we dropped pricing to twenty nine ninety five, and it was a bet the company moment, right? And that was back in the 90s, uh, I think, you know, long time ago. And, um, you know, it's a really great transition that, that we're going through. But I think these businesses are going to come together uh, they're going to put the capabilities of the two organizations together. The short-term bearish is it's going to take some time um, for that to happen and maybe divert interest around operational issues in the short term. But long-term, I think it'll create a healthy partner. And ultimately, that's the most important outcome of this is as an advisor, when you work with a custodian, you really need that custodian to be healthy. And for that custodian to be healthy, they need to not only have a good business serving advisors, they, they need to have a good retail business as well. And the better those businesses are doing, the better it it results in investment and in support for firms like us. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm bullish on on sort of the opportunity and what it might mean. I'm I'm not concerned about consolidation of, of different custodians. There's there's enough choices out there, and there's new ones that could emerge um, to help solve that issue. Huh, quite interesting. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. I want to throw you a little bit of a curveball. In the 90s, when you left Bain, you were deciding on two companies. You ended up going to Schwab, but the other one was a little startup in Seattle that ended up growing into Amazon. When you look back on that decision, what are your thoughts? Had, had you been employee number 50, I got to imagine those stock options would have been pretty valuable. Yeah, who knows, right? Yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe I would have sucked and gotten fired in six months, and it would have been a disaster, <laughs> right? You, you don't you don't you don't know, right? And I think yeah, it was a great opportunity. I, I had the instincts that it was a great opportunity um, at the time, but you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, my entry point to Schwab was pretty unique, and I stepped into an interesting chair as the chief of staff to the vice chairman, and I got to work down the hall from Chuck Schwab. Uh, my 
office, the office directly next to me was Chuck's driver. Right? And, and, wow. you know, Chuck would walk by my office every morning, right? And he'd say hello, and he'd stop. And sometimes we'd have a chat. And, you know, I, I think it was just a unique opportunity to join a highly entrepreneurial organization to work down the hall from, you know, just somebody having immense respect for and was part of shaping the industry. And it represented what I was really looking for at the time, even if I couldn't have put words on it in the moment, was to join an industry, join a profession, join a business that had a real purpose and a purpose that was something other than yourself right? or or the company itself um, was about serving clients and some things that have become uh, were at the time and had become a big part of why it stuck around this industry for so long. So yeah, it, it, yeah, maybe it would have worked out great. Yeah, I've, I've uh, you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't, I wouldn't have sucked and maybe I would have done well, but uh, you know, you can't make those kind of choices, you know, or, or kind of use that 2020 in hindsight. Well, what if I chose this? I'm, I kind of feel like there's probably, you know, four or five decisions like that, that I've, I've made in my career to go right instead of left. And, and all the paths would have been, would have been great. Right. So you just, you got to enjoy the road you're on and enjoy the journey and enjoy the opportunities that you have right now and not, not look back on anything like that with regret. I, I certainly don't. I like that philosophy. Uh, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but I've had to convince people that Charles Schwab is a real guy and the person you see on TV is not an actor. H have you ever had people raise that question with you? I, I actually haven't, but you know, he, he is this, you know, larger than life figurehead, right? And this, this huge company that's his namesake, um, which, which is interesting. You know, the, the interesting thing about Chuck and is, is, uh, he's quite shy, right? You know, so he's, and I, I don't mean that as a spirit. He's, you, you listen to every word that he says in meetings. So it's, I, I just think I look back on that with so much fondness. And that's something that I, I hope to represent in the, in a CEO chair now, you got to look at how he made decisions internally, and it was always about the client, right? And and mathematically, some decisions were very brave from a financial perspective. And you know, be sitting in meetings and there'd be an intense debate over a particular issue, and Chuck would just be quiet for forty five minutes of the meeting, and he'd finally just lean in and very quietly say, "Look, there's only one choice here." What, what's right for the client. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, it's a, a great environment to have had the great fortune to, to grow up and, and see those kind of decisions made, right? Business, business is about a lot of things, but at the core, yeah, it's hard to build a great business if you're not doing the right thing for clients and clients don't like you and your employees don't like coming to work. So, um, yeah, I think those are, those are really important things that I take away from that. Quite interesting. I know I only have you for a few more minutes, so let's jump to our speed round. These are our favorite questions. We ask all of our guests, and we run through them quickly. Let's jump into them. We're all working from home these days. What are you streaming? What are you uh, doing to entertain yourself? Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime shows you're watching. Well, I think like a lot of people, we burn through just about everything, right? So from from streaming or watching. So uh, I think the uh, the podcast, I'm a big podcast listener. I still like to get out and hike and run. So, you know, I love Serial, um, both both the classic episodes as well as some of the, the later series. Um, yeah, I, I love how stuff works. Um, yeah, I love sort of learning 
and getting something that's really out of field and out of out of industry, right? From from a learning perspective, uh, my son and I have started rewatching old old episodes of The Office together, which is which is a heck of a lot of fun. He's fifteen, and it's fun to go back and sort of have that moment of nostalgia and, and rewatch some things. Because um, again, we we burned through so many different different uh, miniseries. I'm looking for some recommendations too. I'll shoot you a, a list of my favorites. Uh, let's let's jump over to mentors who helped shape your career. Well, we talked about uh, you know career. We, we talked about some of the experiences that I had at Schwab and other places. I think the the thing that I think of a lot, and particularly this year, is my mom. Um, uh, and my mom my mom passed away earlier this year, not COVID related, just from age and and wear and tear. So you know, it gave me a lot of chance to reflect. On the lessons uh, that that she taught me that are more important than than business and life. So she's a Kiwi. She's a New Zealander that first moved to London, then moved to New York in her early twenties, and you know met my dad and stayed. But but like a lot of Kiwis, she's this intrepid spirit. She was an adventurer. Um, did a lot of mountain climbing and skiing uh, in New Zealand. That you know became part of a, a family tradition. But. Uh, like a lot of Kiwis and to all my family that are in that part of the world, they have this this wonderful elegance to enjoy life, uh, to live life, and and not worry about um, sort of the little things and to clear things through and a, an incredible sense of humor. So I, I think as we've gotten into 2020 and you know not only the the, the, the loss of her but sort of all the other challenges you're facing, sort of this this you know disposition, right, to sort of Enjoy, enjoy the journey you're on rather than, you know, regrets or worries or whatever, whatever challenges you're facing just to overcome it. She was, she was a tough cookie. Um, so, you know, she's been, she's been my beacon throughout this year. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading now? And, and what are your, some of your all-time favorites? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm a huge, I was a huge fan of uh, the Gladwell books. Um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, is, of course, there's sort of a a lesser known for folks that like those that I've, I've reread this year because I enjoyed it so much um, called the talent code and the culture code by, by Daniel Coyle. So a couple great books that, that build on some of the principles that Gladwell talks about. So the talent code short version, everybody knows the 10,000 hours Gladwell talks about, Daniel takes that a, a couple steps further and talks about, actually how those 10,000 hours really should work um, and how the brain works when it's learning. It's not just the hours. It's actually the the kind of practice, so purposeful practice. And a key part of practice is actually making mistakes. So we learn more when we're making mistakes, the way the brain actually works um, to be able to learn. So I think it's a really important principle to hold when you're trying to build a growing enterprise or just just navigating life. It's not about being perfect. It's actually about the experimenting and learning um, from those experiments about what worked and what didn't. The culture code builds that into the power of small teams and how teams in general should operate. Um, some of the key principles are about keeping it very flat, um, about creating safety and vulnerability and honesty um, in that environment. So uh, a lot of great vignettes throughout. Um, so highly recommend both of those and they're good rereads uh, in the environment we're in. Huh, quite interesting. I'm I'm in the middle of a recent Gladwell book called Talking to Strangers, which really makes sense in uh, this period of uh, political discord. I, I'm finding it quite quite intriguing. Every everything he writes is always 
a fascinating narrative. He tells really interesting stories. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in a career in financial services? Yeah, I think there's the general advice I'd give, and then specific to this industry, it definitely applies, is join an industry that's growing and interesting to you. Join a company that's making a dent um, and and growing um, as well. Worry a little bit less about the position, right? The specific role, right? So I've had the fortune to join a great industry, to join great companies that were in those industry. All those things created opportunities for me well beyond the first job that I got as part of those organizations. So um, simplified version of all that is growth is really important. So a lot of great, very talented millennials that work for us, the best thing that I can do for them is to have an enterprise that's growing um, and gives them opportunities to jump a rung in a ladder or two, maybe even before they think they're ready, right? So those are that's really, really critical. I think this profession is changing, right? So this profession has become more about client care and that bedside manner, if you will, of working with clients than it has become about the math, right? So I think the financial service industry, the urgency out of this is really ultimately about caring for clients and helping people. And and that's where the industry is going. That's where our professionals are going. The, the math is still critically important, um, but the math can be done by machines. The math can be done by focus groups of people, whether that's on our investment team or other or, or accounting team um, in two areas. But I, I think that's where the industry is changing, and I think in a very, very positive way. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 25 years or so ago when you were first getting started? Well, I think it's just that. I mean, just open up the account and get started. Right? I think as an industry, we there is complexity, but you sometimes wonder whether it's created complexity or whether the complexity is real and and, and there. Right? I can remember sitting with my dad once I had some means and you know had a couple good summer jobs, uh, painting houses, and you know had some for for college kids some good income for that. And I'm like, well, what should I do with this? And I can remember it feeling very complicated and intimidating. And fortunately, you know, uh, he pushed all the papers aside and all the different fund choices aside. And he said, let's just do this. Like, let's just open the account and let's just make this one investment and we'll see how it goes. I think just just get started. Um, it's not as scary as as you think it is. And there's there's no substitute for best investment strategy is start early right, and have patience, right? So I think that's um, that's really key. And I think I think all of us to take heart in, right? The complexity that surrounds this industry. How do we how do we simplify it and get get our clients and others to make some very fundamental basic decisions um, that are going to be really important for them for the long term? Fascinating stuff, Dave. Thank you for being so generous with your time. That was Dave Welling. He is the CEO of Mercer Advisors, a firm that runs about $21 billion in assets. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 375 or so we've had over the past six years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast fix satisfied. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. 
I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Maruful is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.